Well, I was just in my late 20s when David and I met, and he, when we met, he was reeling. He told me that 10 years earlier, he'd met the love of his life. A few years later, they married, and then they had a daughter, and a couple of years after that, a son. And things were going incredibly well. Until she met a guy at work, and they hit, off, hit it off, they uh, started a friendship, and then she made a fateful decision, a decision to begin an affair. Not long after, she told David that she had decided to leave him and uh, marry this other man. David didn't see it coming, and it was devastating. David and I met uh, maybe six months after the divorce. It took him a couple of years to recover, even enough to think about dating again. And then he met a woman at the church that we were attending. She too was divorced, although that divorce was somewhat in the past. She was also in the process of breaking off what had been a long-term dating relationship. She had decided in the midst of all this turmoil to start attending church and to reconnect with her childhood faith. Well, David and uh, this woman had a few dates. They really hit it off. Things seemed to be going well when all of a sudden they faced an unexpected crisis. One night, David's new girlfriend called him and asked him if they could get together. She was sobbing, so he knew something was wrong. So they went to a restaurant, and she told him that just over a month earlier, she'd gone to see her ex-boyfriend to break things off once and for all. But the evening did not go the way that she had planned. And through tears, she told David that she was pregnant and that her ex-boyfriend was the father. And David called me and asked me what I should do, or what he should do. And I've got to tell you, I was in my late 20s, I had no idea what to tell him. <laughs> he asked me, should he break things off? He had now had some deep questions about her character that he had not had before. He was impressed with the incredible strides that she'd made, especially in her faith, in reconnecting with God. So he wondered if he should stay with her, should he give the relationship some time, and then what about this baby? And he wondered also about his reputation, because if they kept dating, he knew people would begin to talk, and that few might even believe his story. Well, what did he do? Well, he stayed with her. He made, she made a commitment to sexual purity. And eight months later, she gave birth to a baby boy. And they took time. They actually took quite a bit of time to see how this might sort out. But later, they did marry. And David adopted this son. Now, believe me, I'm not suggesting that you follow David's example. I had grave misgivings at the time. And yet, in a remarkable way, in fact, a really wonderful way, this all worked out. Now, as far-fetched as it might seem, there are some similarities, although some big differences as well, between my friend David's story and the Christmas story. If you don't believe me, listen in a little later when we read the story, and I think you'll see some parallels. As I said last week, this Advent, we're taking a fresh look at the Christmas story, a story that's so well-known that its very familiarity keeps us from seeing what it truly is, and that is a real-life story about real-life people. Our purpose this year is to take an historical look at the Christmas story. And that means that we're going to look at some details that we've often either looked over or ignored or even gotten wrong. And this week we're looking at another of the central characters in this story. And this time we're looking at the person of Joseph. Now last week we looked at Mary. Everybody loves Mary. She gets lots of attention. But often Joseph gets overlooked. We are given only a few facts about Joseph's life. 
Mark, who was one of Jesus' biographers, tells us that he was a carpenter. The word for carpenter is the Greek word tekton, which means someone who works with wood or stone. And by the way, you may recognize in just how the word sounds that it's part of the word, our word, architect. In fact, because Joseph wasn't called an architecton in the story, in Greek, we know that he was not a master builder. That means that Joseph was a humble woodworker or stonemason. That makes Joseph the blue-collar guy in the story. Humble, honest, hardworking, kind of a salt-of-the-earth sort of person. But there is one part of Joseph's background that we know about that made him stand out. And that was that he was a direct descendant of King David. David was considered Israel's greatest king. He lived a thousand years earlier. And after David, the nation's kings were a mixed lot. There were some good, some bad, and some very, very bad. What emerged was a desire for a new king, one who would lead them as David had. The prophets, including Isaiah in Isaiah 16:5, predicted that one day there would be this kind of king, one who would come and lead them. And that king would be a descendant of David. So in that sense, Joseph isn't quite as ordinary as he might seem. God used him in this story to bring about Israel's long-awaited hope. Now, he was also a trustworthy guy. We'll see that as the story emerges. And that quality alone was something that God could use. Now, right up front in Matthew's telling of the story, last week we looked at Luke's telling about Mary's part in the story, but this week in Matthew we learned that they were pledged to be married. We talked last week about how engagements worked during the ancient world, so I'm not going to belabor it other than to remind you that they were in the middle of what was a three-step process. So the first step in the process was engagement. Likely that had been arranged when they were young, probably by their parents. Right now they're in this pledged or betrothal period. Uh, The engagement's been ratified, it's now legally binding, can only be broken by divorce, but they are not yet married. That's the third step, when there's a wedding ceremony that would take place that would begin this married couple's life together. So with that as background, let's listen to what Matthew tells us about Joseph's story. And I'm reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And you can either follow along in the Pew Bible on page 1468 or with the words that will be on the screen. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until after she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Right at the beginning of the story, you see the problem. Joseph and Mary are in step two of this three-step process. They're engaged, pledged, but not yet married. And then Joseph learns that Mary's pregnant. 
Last week we heard the story from Mary's vantage point, how the angel visited her and told her she would be the mother of the Messiah. It was thrilling news, but she herself didn't believe at first either. Eventually, though, she came to understand that God had blessed her beyond anything she'd ever expected. But it left her with a problem. How's she going to tell Joseph? And would he believe her? And the answer is, he didn't. How could he? He'd never heard of anything like this before. It didn't make sense. So he reached the only reasonable conclusion, and that was that Mary had been unfaithful to him. The only option he believed he had was to call the whole thing off. And given the conventions of the day, he could have insisted that she be publicly humiliated. He even could have insisted that she be stoned to death. So he felt betrayed, deeply disappointed, embarrassed, scandalized, and he wondered how Mary could have let him down. And all of that left Joseph with a decision to make. The text tells us that Joseph was a righteous man, or our translation says he was faithful to the law. So how does a a righteous one, one committed to obeying the law, do what he needs to do? Well, what we understand is in many ways he had three options. And the first option is he could have been a stickler for the rules. He could have insisted on a public trial to determine guilt. He could have made a scene, publicly humiliated her in order to save face and ended the relationship. And in that way, he would have preserved his reputation and honor in the community. So that's option one. He could have also done something that resonates with our culture, although less so with theirs, and that is he could have followed his heart. He could have married her anyway, and if the public humiliation was too great, they could have simply just relocated to California or something. And that would have been, unfortunately, from Joseph's point of view, to disobey God, something Joseph simply wasn't going to do. So what did he do? Well, he didn't choose either of the options. He chose a third way. Instead of public humiliation or passionate disobedience, Matthew tells us Joseph began to make plans to privately file for divorce. Now, the question some of you are saying was, how's that different from number one, where, you know, you're going to divorce anyway? The answer is, he chooses to do so privately, not publicly. Now, what his choice is, is to try to be righteous, but also at the same time to be merciful. Joseph was concerned to do the right thing, but he was also concerned to do it in the right way. He could have responded harshly, but he didn't. Instead, we're told he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he was merciful with Mary, just as God is often merciful with us. Intuitively, we are drawn, and by the way, drawn and torn at the same time, between a desire for law and order and a desire for mercy. We all want to live in a world where the bad guys get what's coming. And we also want a world in which we are shown mercy. Isn't that what you hope for when you get pulled out right out here for a rolling the stop sign, which I don't know how many people here have. I have. Or when you're a few days late and paying your mortgage. God does this with us all the time. And he asks us, when appropriate, to do it for others. And it's in that light that our respect, or at least my respect for Joseph grows. This simple, humble man goes up a few notches. Because when he learns that Mary's pregnant, he's hurt. He feels betrayed. He may even have been angry. He has every right under the rules of the the day to throw the book at her, to do what is necessary to preserve his honor and reputation. And yet, he shows Mary mercy. That makes Joseph a high-character guy. He knew what was most important. He knew the letter of the law was important. He knew the reputation, his own reputation mattered. But even more, he knew that God wanted him to show mercy and love to Mary. 
Love and mercy doesn't mean that justice isn't important. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be sanctions. But it does mean that we need to take a bigger view. And sometimes love means setting aside the law and doing what's merciful. And that's what Joseph decides to do. He knew as a righteous Jew he couldn't go through with the wedding, but he wants to break things off in the most humane way possible. But there's a problem. And the problem is he's about to make a huge mistake. What he doesn't know, as impossible as it seems, is that Mary was telling the truth. And that's when God intervenes and sends an angel to visit Joseph in a dream. And the angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. He tells him the baby has been divinely conceived. And he tells him that the child is the promised Messiah. So what does Joseph do? Well, it says when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. It's amazing, isn't it? It's even more remarkable when you consider that what he's doing here is basically entering into life, married life, with a cloud over both their heads. When Joseph married Mary, he did so knowing that from that day on that people would talk. That behind his back they would say, did you hear? And then tell a story. And so he showed a willingness to endure gossip and ridicule and hits to his reputation. And yet his righteousness is shown in the way that he's willing to be obedient despite all of that. Consequently, he was used by God to be the father of his son. The point Matthew makes here is the same point that Luke made last week, and that is that both Joseph and Mary had a choice. The angel came to let both of them know what God had planned for them, and they could have said no. In fact, last week after the sermon, someone came up to me and said, I wonder how many, how many uh, young women the angel had to go to before he found one who would say yes. That's a fair question. And I think the answer is just one. I think it's just Mary. But the reality is that both Mary and Joseph had a choice. And they chose to obey God and do what he asked. The interesting thing about Joseph's decision here is that from our way of thinking, he's being asked to adopt Jesus. Jesus is not, or Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but still he's asked to receive Jesus as his son. In fact, in Luke's biography of Jesus in chapter 3, right at the beginning when Jesus begins a public ministry, he writes this. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And you might be saying, well, how do you connect that with the prophetic word that Jesus is to be a descendant of David? If he's not actually Joseph's biological child, how can that be? Well, let me just tell you that in the ancient world, blood relationship was not necessary for receiving family privileges. So it wasn't uncommon, especially for wealthy families, to adopt children, maybe a boy, maybe a girl, um, and that from that moment on, that child would be considered equal to their biological children. So in this way, Jesus, once adopted by Joseph, is considered to be a descendant of David, just as the prophet had predicted. By the way, that's true today as well. In many ways, some, uh, including some here at City Church, families will adopt a child. And there are times when some, I think, uh, unintentionally insensitive person will ask one of these parents, well, which one of these children is your own? And you know what parents are thinking. They're thinking, I know, you're so, being so insensitive and they want to blast them. But yet in their minds, what they're thinking is, all my children are my own. And that's true. Last week we talked briefly about how challenging the Christmas story can be. And the reason is, is because the big picture of the Christmas story is a miracle baby. And I know some of you are skeptical about miracles. You may not believe it, but so were the folks in the Christmas story. Last week when we looked at Mary, and this week we're looking at Joseph, neither of them believed immediately. They took some time for them to understand this. 
um, this week I was reading a, a story in a magazine um, about a mother who uh, was reading the Christmas story to her four-year-old daughter. Now, she finished reading the story, and her daughter said, Mom, I don't believe it. Now, you can just imagine the panic of this mother. She's sort of trying to figure out this little four-year-old skeptic and what she's going to do with her. And So she gently probed and found out that her daughter's skepticism didn't have to do with the virgin birth part, but it had to do with the angel thing. She just didn't really kind of get her head around that. You know what? That little four-year-old girl is not alone in her skepticism. When you think about it, the Christmas story really stretches our credulity. You've got the angels visiting Mary, Joseph, and some shepherds. There's a virgin conceiving, a star guiding, magi being warned in a dream uh, to go home a different way. And then you add into all of that what is really the biggest deal of all, and that is that in Jesus, God becomes a human being. How can rational, scientifically literate, 21st century people like us believe things even a four-year-old is skeptical about? In part, I believe these stories because the characters themselves were skeptical at first and yet came to understand these things were true. They experienced something that changed the way that they saw everything. But another reason I believe the story is because it has a much more profound point than simply a divine being showing off. The incarnation, the virgin conceiving and giving birth to Messiah, is a remarkable thing, a remarkable feat. What's even more amazing, though, is that the God who made the universe, who cared enough about us, that he sent his son to be born of a human being, to come, to die, to be crucified, to be raised again, to give us new life and forgiveness to broken people like each one of us. You see, these are miracles with a point. They show us that God is not a God who stands on the sidelines, letting nature look after itself, but one who is sustaining and active in the world in which we live. Sometimes this means exerting his power in ways that seem out of ordinary to us, and at other times it's small but significant ways in our daily lives. The God of Christmas holds the universe in the palm of his hands, and he has a purpose in what he does. Now, after reading this story and thinking about it for a moment, the question is, how do we live it? I want to leave you, leave you with two ideas, at least briefly, about the way I think Joseph's story can teach us. And the first of these things is to do the right thing for the right reasons. Now, some of you are rule followers. You have high expectations for yourselves, and you have high expectations for others. Every, if everyone would just do, you think, what is expected of them, like I'm doing, everything will work better. Now, my guess in our culture is that you are the minority. We live in a world that celebrates the free spirit, the person who colors outside the lines, and yet we also know that that kind of rebel spirit can get us into trouble. So understand that Joseph's story is not telling us to toss out the rule book and just live as we please. But Joseph's story is telling us that in the midst of living out the way God asks us to live, that there are some higher values for us to keep in mind as well. So when we're trying to do the right thing, we need to follow the rules and do what God asks, but at the same time, do it for the right reasons. And that means getting this balance between law and order and mercy right. Showing mercy to people when they mess up. Remembering how great it feels when others show us mercy and then extending that to others as well. A second way we can live this out is to become an adopted son or daughter of an adopting God. Now let me just work this out a little bit. But the story, we've already said, has Joseph adopting Jesus as his son. It was a one-time deal. None of us are going to be asked to do exactly what Joseph did. But this whole idea of adoption is something that plays out in life-changing ways through the Christmas story. 
Years later, after Jesus grew to be a man, he said that his purpose was to seek and save the lost. In other words, he came to reconcile us to God and to one another. And one day he's going to bring us into his kingdom. And we'll live with him for eternity in a place, a new heaven and a new earth, where everything will work the way that it's supposed to be. St. Paul once wrote in Romans 8.23 that we eagerly await to be adopted by God as his sons and daughters. In other words, our deepest longings to be a part of God's family, to be adopted by God. That through a relationship with Jesus, we experience a change in status. By grace, we're adopted into the family of God. And once we're adopted, we have family rights. We have access to God. And we share in a divine inheritance in eternal life with God. So in essence, Joseph gives us a human example of what God promises to do for each one of us. The child that Mary and Joseph raised from birth went to the cross. He died a death that we deserved, then rose again in order that we might be adopted into God's family through faith. And that's what it means for us to be adopted. And it's something we need to receive. The angel told Joseph that the son growing in Mary would be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Adoption by God through faith in Jesus changes everything for us. And the way that we experience the mercy of God is by becoming adopted children of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that changes everything for us, no matter what we've done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Joseph, this humble man. This humble man who received what he was told um, with faith. He obeyed, despite the consequences that it had for his life. We thank you that he was someone who was both righteous as well as merciful, who had those things in balance. May we be that kind of people as well, who do the right things for the right reasons. And may we look to the son that he raised as our savior the one who will save us from our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.